Well, good evening, Rua Church. I want to invite you uh, to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. And we'll be uh, just reading from the beginning of chapter 11. And once you have found that text uh, in your Bibles, I want to invite you to stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Luke uh, 11, beginning in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves Forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, as we've been studying now the Gospel of Luke for some time together, uh, you might not, uh, all of you have been here when we introduced uh, the Gospel of Luke, when we read uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Um, but at that time, uh, one of the things I had mentioned and something that I think we've maybe been seeing subtly throughout the Gospel of Luke is an emphasis on prayer. Uh, we, we see often Jesus going and doing ministry and then retreating and, uh, and spending time, long, long spans of time in prayer, uh, how that's very closely associated with his preaching ministry and also his, his healing ministry. But it's, uh, it's been quite some time into the Gospel of Luke now uh, before we get what is introduced to us in the first couple of chapters of Matthew's Gospel, and that is uh, what is typically referred to here as the Lord's Prayer. And you might have grown up uh, having memorized this if you grew up in church, uh, possibly the old King James version of this prayer. Um, and there's uh, much, I think, tradition and much uh, beauty uh, from the church having kept this prayer for a long period of time, indeed, throughout uh, her entire history. But uh, something you might have noticed as we just read the text here um, is that this prayer, or this, this rendition of the Lord's Prayer, is, is shorter in Luke's Gospel. It's a little bit more to the point. Uh, and there's a lot of things that are omitted here that are included in Matthew's uh, edition of the Lord's Prayer. Um, and so as we, as we move through this text, I just want you to, to keep that in mind, uh, because I think it, it does tell us something about what this prayer is to be like and how we are uh, to use it. Uh, my working uh, title for the text today is that this is the disciples' prayer. This is the disciples' prayer. It's the prayer Jesus offers to his disciples in response to their question about how are they to pray as followers of him. So uh, with that in mind, let's look at verse 1 and the petition that they have for him. Uh, we see that it comes at a time when Jesus was already praying in a certain place. Luke doesn't tell us location-wise where it is. He doesn't really tell us chrono chronologically when it happens. All he tells us is that uh, it came to pass while Jesus was praying in a certain place, uh, one of his disciples came to him and asked him uh, for, for Jesus to teach them how to pray. The disciple comes to him and actually makes a petition this way. He says, teach us to pray uh, just as John also taught his disciples. And uh, you, might, you might say that if Jesus hasn't taught his disciples to pray up until this point where they need to ask, uh, there's something let's say, interesting about, about that note, that Jesus, you know, he's been teaching them a lot of things, the theology of the kingdom, the theology of what it means to be a disciple. Um, why has he not taught them yet how to pray? And part of it is, I think, because Jesus has 
um, as prayer is something that's reserved for a disciple of Jesus. That's going to become clear as we, we look at the prayer itself. But the other thing that's, that's really important is there's a lot of things that Jesus has told his disciples to do thus far uh, for them to even be disciples. For instance, um, he's, he's told them to forsake uh, all kinds of earthly comforts to follow him. Right? We saw that at the end of Luke chapter 9. He calls three different individuals to his discipleship. And in each instance, he's asking them to do something uh, that, is, that they're asking for either more time or for a delay or for some kind of accommodation. And Jesus essentially says, no, if, if you're my disciple, you have to do not only what I say, but, you know, when I say it, it's a high demand of discipleship. You see in Luke 9.23, we looked at the time when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, he must take up his cross daily, and then he must follow after me. It's a high price to pay if you're a disciple. You have to daily bear your burdens, bear your sins, bear the things that afflict you for the sake of following after Christ. It's not exactly uh, a luxury kind of offer. So it, it's possibly that in the environment of all these things that disciples must do, all these things that is required of disciples, that kind of fertilizes the ground and the environment from when the, the request to teach them how to pray comes. You might ask the question, how is it that Jesus is able to be perfect for his entire earthly ministry? And as Hebrews tells us, it is actually through the offer of the eternal spirit that Christ presented himself as perfect before the Father. How does Jesus rely daily on the Spirit? Well, he, he prays. He's saturated in prayer. At his baptism, he receives the Holy Spirit, and it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that he performs all his earthly ministry, all his earthly miracles, all his teaching, all his uh, sinlessness. All of that is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And now here, the disciples have been seeing Jesus do all these things. They've been hearing all the demands, and now comes the request of Look, can we have access to the same power that you have access to? The same, uh, the same request, the same intimacy with the Father that you have access to? Because they're starting to put the pieces together, right? Jesus is able to do what he's doing by means of prayer, by means of intimacy with the Father, by means of a close fellowship that up until now, they're, they're saying they're at least in some case lacking. They want to know how it is that they ought to pray. Now, this question is a, is a question asked to Jesus in the first century, but I think uh, if you're anything like any other American Christian, uh, there are certain things that come easy to you, and there are certain things that come more, uh, more difficult. Uh, for instance, if you were to survey your average uh, American Christian, uh, we have lots of theological resources that we invest in and we have access to. We have uh, conferences that are hosted, and people will pay money to go get a ticket to go to a conference and to hear people speak. Uh, we have an abundance of riches in the West when it comes to theology and writing and books and, and all means of information that we can gather about Scripture. And it is to our benefit that we have these riches. Those, I'm not saying those are bad things. But you can, uh, in the same token, try to have uh, a free prayer meeting where no one has to buy a ticket, no one has to go and go out of their way to travel anywhere to go do it. And you can do that in a Western church, and you can watch only a handful of people show up from a vast congregation. In the West, we're relatively impoverished when it comes to prayer. And you might have been saying at some point, maybe in your own life, or maybe it's just a, a secret thought in your heart, I mean, I really wish that prayer was something that I knew how to do, and not just by knowing what to say or how to say it, but something that I could enjoy in the same way that I enjoy reading the word and studying it, or in the same way that I enjoy fellowship with other believers. Is prayer something that can be enjoyed by a disciple of Christ? My working theory on Jesus's giving of this prayer is that prayer is not a burden to be carried by disciples, but it's, it's, it's a blessing as a means of their own 
uh, existence and preservation in the journey of discipleship. Prayer is not something that God calls us to do so much as it is something that he gives to us as a means by which we can do everything else he requires of us. If we don't pray, uh, we're dead in the water when it comes to everything else. The demands to be holy, the demands to read the word, the demands to fellowship and to preach the gospel, all of those other things kind of fall by the wayside because a prayer is really the means by which we access intimacy with the Father, by which we make his, our requests known to him, and by which we experience the relational aspect of our relationship to him. Jesus uh, does some, some interesting things in this prayer when he gives it to the disciples. But the reason I'm, I'm kind of belaboring the point on the front end of why he gives the prayer and how he gives the prayer and the purpose it serves is because I, I have a fear, and that fear I think is rooted maybe in my own experience with this prayer in the past. Um, my fear is that uh, we might walk away from this time together and, and know a lot about what Jesus is talking about, what he's referencing in the Old Testament, what is the theology of the Lord's Prayer, what he's putting forward. And we might walk away having known a lot of things about the prayer, but we might not walk away, let's say, and then tomorrow, pray more to God. My concern is that that would happen. And so what I, my exhortation on the front end is, don't let that be the case. You walk away with anything from, from this time in the word, reflecting on the prayer that Jesus gives his disciples, is you have to walk away with the understanding that Jesus gave this to his disciples as something for them to use, not primarily as something for them to understand, even though understanding is part of being able to use it. It is something he gives to us as a means of our own flourishment or our own flourishing, not something he, he gives to us as another thing to do in our, uh, let's say, morning quiet time, even though it is something that we should do in our morning quiet time. So that being said, let's look to the words that Jesus gives to his disciples. And you'll see that uh, at the, uh, in verse 2, uh, where he says, and he says to them, uh, when you pray, pray like this. And then here is the first word, first line. It says, Father. Now, uh, if you are familiar with Matthew's rendition of this text, uh, Matthew says, uh, what? Our Father who art in heaven, if you remember the King James version of this text. Uh, the fact that there's a difference between Matthew and Luke's edition of the Lord's Prayer should tell us something, and I think uh, one of the commentators observes this excellently. The Lord's Prayer is not just words that we repeat back to God. That doesn't mean it can't be something we recite or something that we internalize and memorize, but the very fact that in Scripture we have two different editions of the same prayer should tell us that the Lord's Prayer is a guardrail for us to pray, not necessarily exact words that we must be saying. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, it probably won't be as short as it takes you to read the prayer. There's all kinds of things that can come out of the theology of the Lord's Prayer. For instance, here, the address of God being Father. Now, there's all kinds of Old Testament background for calling God Father. But in the Old Testament, God is considered the Father only of Israel. He's the Father of the Israelite people. He, is, he calls himself, for example, in Hosea, he, he refers to Israel as being a young people, a young seedling, which he brought out of Egypt, and he planted them in the wilderness, and he fed them, and he nurtured them, and he cared for them. He's their, he's their father. When he goes to Moses and he tells Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, lead them out of captivity, he says uh, to Pharaoh, you have my firstborn son in bondage. That's actually why the final punishment on Pharaoh is the killing of the firstborn of all the Egyptians, because, well, Pharaoh has the firstborn of God captive in his land. So the, the, that Israel is God's children, that he is their father, is something that has precedent in the Old Testament. Now, that being said, 
Nowhere in the Old Testament do you have the language of Abba, which is the, the, the text that, uh, or the language that Jesus spoke in, in Aramaic. Nowhere do you have that as a petition to God as an address. Uh, you have the psalmist calling God Lord. They call him creator. They call him uh, God. But they don't call him Father. And so that's something that Jesus is doing with the Old Testament. He's synthesizing a lot of doctrine and theology and he's putting it into something as simple as just an address. On what grounds do you come before God? Well, you come before him as a child, and he is your father. Now think about the development of Luke's gospel up until this point. Luke is written to Gentiles, and his audience is, is following along as this Jewish Messiah is coming in and in various times and in various places, offering out salvation to well, various groups of Gentile people, people who are on the periphery of the Jewish salvation. We saw early in Luke's gospel, John the Baptist coming and saying to the Pharisees, don't say that you are children of Abraham. God can make whoever he wants children of Abraham. And so here, he's, let's say, bringing that point all the way home where he's saying, the disciple of Jesus is the one who can call God Father. For God to be our Father is not something, let's say, that's an individually true thing of you or you as a believer. Now, before I go further, look at the rest of the prayer. For example, look down at verse 3, where you see the petition, not give me my daily bread. You see the petition, give us our daily bread. Or verse 4, and forgive not me my sins, but forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. This is a prayer, and the address of Father kind of spells this out, that God is the Father of all who are in Christ, the disciples of Christ, and this prayer is something that is offered corporately to the disciples. Now, in our Western framework, we typically only think about this Lord's Prayer in terms of us individually. We make all the plural pronouns and references singular pronouns and references. But the prayer is not uh, necessarily for individual Christians to be praying necessarily to God as though he's only their father at the exclusion of everyone else. But as Calvin says, um, his fatherhood makes brothers of us all. That God is our father says something about our relationship to one another. God being our father tells us not only about our position to him, but also our position to other believers in the faith. So when we address him, right, right before we're going to make all kinds of requests for the corporate body to give us our daily bread, right? That's referring to a lot of Christians. He first starts off by saying, like, every, every Christian has this in common, that we share God as Father. Now, God is the creator of the entire cosmos. He's the creator of all the world. He's the creator of humanity. But he's only the Father of Jesus, and those who are in Jesus. He's only the father of Christ and all who are in Christ. Jesus says, if you want access to the father, you have to come through me. So if you want to approach God as father, you have to be in Christ. It's kind of the point, right? Jesus is, it's his disciple asking him, how do I pray to God? And he says, you can call him father because you are mine. You're in me. And then the address from Father goes on, and he says, the first, let's say, petition, right? So we've addressed the prayer. Now the first petition, 
let your name be made holy. As we often read it, and the, most English translations even preserve that old King James language, hallowed be your name. You might have an English translation that says that in front of you. It's let your name be holy. Let your name be honored and revered and, well, let it be glorified. There's an Old Testament background for this request, much like the Old Testament background for the term father. And the Old Testament background can be found in Ezekiel 36. I want to invite you to turn to Ezekiel 36 with me so you can read that text. And we'll be looking uh, at verse 22, and I'll be reading a, a longer section of Ezekiel 36. But this is the background for the request for God to make his name holy or for God to make his name hallowed. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22, God says these words, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. And when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring, into, and bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then verse 28, you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Now remember, God's going to do all of those things. Reestablish Israel, put them in the land, bless them, make them a people that are blessed unlike any other people. Why? For the sake of my holy name, verse 22 and verse 23, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. This is the Old Testament background for a text that's often referenced as being, this is the promise of the new covenant which believers have access to in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 8 quotes from uh, Ezekiel and tells us about the beauty of the new covenant promise which we have access to in God. And it's for the sake of God's holy name that he moves to enact this covenant with his people, a new covenant. And so it's this Old Testament background that forms not only the, the context from which God is going to be vindicated among the nations, but also the way in which God is still bringing about his work in his kingdom, into the world, well, through his people praying. And one of the things they pray is, Father, uh, would your name be holy? And what's the background for that? Just like you've already promised you're going to make your name holy. God's already promised he's going to do all these things to the people of Israel for his own name's sake, but he's going to do it through them so that through them his name might be made uh, great in the world. And yet, it is the case that the disciples are called to pray for God to make his name holy. Now, this is something that I think is often true about prayer, which is that God is inviting us to ask him for things that he's already promised us he's going to do. In the Old Testament, we're given promises from God to Israel, and those promises form the, the pretext or the foundation upon which all the requests and petitions in the prayer 
are, let's say, confidently asked for. There's a prayer in Daniel 9 that has this same kind of context, but just looking here, Jesus is inviting his disciples to pray that God's name would be holy, and the whole background of that is, well, God already said he's going to make his name holy. They're praying for something that God's already promised he's going to do. This is uh, the foundation uh, of prayer. Prayer is really us petitioning God to do the things he's already told us or promised to us are going to take place. This is true, by the way, of the entire prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. Let your name be made holy. And this is something that I think often we struggle with when we think about prayer is what, what purpose does prayer serve? Because we, we know that God knows all things. Well, why would we bother asking God for things if he knows all things? And Calvin says this best. He says, it is not for his sake that he ordained prayer, but it is for ours to both guide and restrain our wishes. So prayer is a means by which God gives us access to him so that we would know what to pray for. He guides our prayers and uh, what not to pray for. So he restrains our, our asking. And how does he guide and restrain our asking? By helping us pray promises that he's already given to us back to him. And that's true even in this first petition. We're not asking God to do something he's not going to do that's outside of his promise. We're actually asking God to do something he has promised he's going to do, which is that at the, at the coming of Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. His name will be hallowed. We're, but we're praying for it to happen because God's promised that it's going to happen. You'll see the same thing in the very next line of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, let your kingdom come, or uh, your kingdom come, if you have an ESV in front of you. His kingdom is promised to come. Jesus, when he ascends, uh, tells the disciples, by the way, I'm coming back again. And actually, there's a couple of angels hanging out, and they say, why do you look up to heaven wondering where he's going? He's going to come back in the same way that he came to you. So there's this whole understanding that Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom. That's the kind of the conclusion of Revelation. Revelation 19, Jesus comes back to judge those who are in rebellion against him and to, well, celebrate the wedding feast with his faithful. And so yet, even though we know that God has promised his kingdom will come, we still pray, let your kingdom come. That's because, well, his kingdom's not in a full sense here yet. There's all kinds of things that are uh, all kinds of things that are out of line in this world. Well, what would it look like for God's kingdom to be here? And then let's reflect on what we're asking God to do when we say, let your kingdom come. When God's kingdom comes, there will be, there will be no more sin. Meaning all the sins that afflict you in your individual life, all the things that you struggle with as a Christian, well, those things won't be around anymore. So we ask God to let his kingdom come. One of the ways he brings about his kingdom here and now in a growing sense is by slowly and surely freeing you from the grasp of sin and leading you into holiness and righteousness and sanctification. To pray for God to bring his kingdom here is partly for us to pray, well, for God to sanctify us, to purge us of our sin. It's partly for us to pray to be a holy people set apart for him. For us to ask God for his kingdom to come is for us to ask his church to be more holy as he has called it to be. We ask God for his kingdom to come. We're also asking for the world to experience peace unlike what it experiences now. When Christ's kingdom comes, there will be no more war, no more uh, conflict, no more murder, no more any kind of uh, violence or affliction in that sense. 
Even creation will be at peace with itself. We pray God's kingdom to come. We're, we're praying for his peace to be brought into this world. Uh, and not in some far off sense, but just like with sin, we're praying for an ongoing, progressive growth in the amount of peace that this world experiences. And Christians don't just believe that theoretically. We also go into the world and we, well, we actually are peaceful to other people. We, uh, we start cultures which, uh, well, through the influence of the gospel, will be more peaceful to those who are in them. This is what the abolitionists saw when they saw slavery coming to an end, that the kingdom of God would be more felt in Europe by the end of slavery. That God's kingdom would come, not in some far-off distant sense, but in a real sense right now, by means of us putting to right something that's been wrong. So his peace, that it would come. We ask for his justice to come, that, that when his kingdom comes on earth, well, his justice is going to be perfect and final and unadulterated, and to that effect, we're praying for justice to be done here on the earth now as well. For his kingdom to come in a growing sense means that, well, we don't just want justice when Christ comes at some point in the future. We're also really a hunger for justice now as God's people. Which means we don't tolerate, well, we don't tolerate injustices in our midst. So as the church, we don't tolerate sin. We don't tolerate anything like that in our midst because, well, Paul tells us not to tells us as a church you have to be wholly set apart to God and to do justice means if there's someone who's guilty of a crime in your midst you need to turn them over to the law and let the law have its way with them. We pray for well our government to reflect the justice of God. Justice is something that is part of God's kingdom and we would say that the government is a minister of God to enact his justice in the world and we pray for God's kingdom to come part of what we're praying is for the government to be more in line with the justice of God so that right would be done in this world and that the kingdom would grow in a real, tangible sense here on this earth. To this effect, we've even, uh, as Christians, by and large, tried to, tried to wrong inju or right injustices in this world. This is why, you know, in, in Rome, what they would do with, with children that were unwanted is they would just expose them to the elements. It's kind of what they would do if a child was unfit or unhealthy. And Christians were known for grabbing all these orphans off the street and raising them as their own. Why were the Christians doing that? Well, they were doing it because while they prayed for the far-off kingdom of God to come and be here on this world, they understood that they had a role to play about what that looks like here on this earth. That the church is, in some sense, a, an, a silo of the kingdom of God here in this world. That justice would be perfectly done. That those who are treated unjustly in the world are treated justly in the kingdom of God. And that includes uh, those who are most vulnerable in our culture, uh, churches regularly must engage in outreach to those who are hurting in the community because, well, we believe that the kingdom of God is coming, we pray for it to come, and then we go and do our duty so that we might reflect that reality even in our conduct and in our lives. We pray, let your kingdom come. Now, there's so much that can be said on that front. We have a, a, a hunger and a longing here in this world that tells us that all kinds of things are wrong, all kinds of things are broken. And, and part of that injustice that we see in the world that we long for in the kingdom, part of that uh, blasphemy of God's name that we see in the world that we long for to be made right in the kingdom, part of those things are things that are innate to us as believers who have the Holy Spirit within us. We can't always spell out the reality of why things are the way that they are, or even understand why we want them to be different or why we long for them to be different, but we have an innate desire within us as people of God, 
to see things that are broken in this world made right. And part of what Jesus is giving us in these first two petitions is a means of praying that out to God. When we sense something is off, that God's name isn't revered as it ought to be by other people in this world, or even by us in our own conduct and actions, he tells us, pray that his name would be made holy. Now, why do we pray? Because God is the only one who can bring about that change in the world. We can no more make ourselves love God's name more uh, as we could when we first were outside of him. And so we're just as dependent on God now to love his name more as we were all the way before we were even in Christ. And what is the means by which we access the strength to change? Well, it's, it's prayer. And you see this kind of throughout the Lord's Prayer is that God is telling us to do things that he's promised for us to do, and prayer is the means by which he accomplishes the things that he has promised. Now you see uh, at least a pretext in the first two petitions that formulate and underscore those second petitions that are more focused on us. You see in verse 3, he asks, or he tells them to pray, give us each day our daily bread. Or, uh, some translations will say, give us this day the bread which is needful for us, or give us the bread that we need day by day. However it's put in front of you, the reality is that the petition is largely the same. Daily bread is a, a way of saying, give us the things that we need here in this world now. Bread is a, a stand-in for uh, food in general, any kind of physical sustenance. But just as you say, uh, you know, I have a job which helps me put food on the table, probably heard that figure of speech. Um, it's kind of like saying, well, I have a job that provides you know, rent, it provides insurance, it provides a car. All those things are kind of summed up in that one statement. So is, give us each day our daily bread. Give us, Lord, each day the things which we need to survive into another day. Luke's driving emphasis, or let's say the background for this emphasis, is the manna in the wilderness. The Jewish people experience God's regular intervention by supernatural means to feed daily in a place that they couldn't grow food. But something that's interesting happens in Deuteronomy 8, where Moses warns the people right before they're going to go in the promised land. He says, just because you're not getting manna anymore on a daily basis when you go into the promised land, don't be confused that you're any less dependent on God day by day for your food, for your victory over your enemies, for all the harvest, for all the produce, for all of the success that you will experience. And Jesus, much to his disciples, is saying the same kind of thing. Maybe they live in cultures in the future which might be affluent, where they don't have a daily struggle for food. What should they pray then? Well, they pray the same thing, because they're just as dependent on God for daily sustenance. Give us each day our daily bread. We are just as dependent now on God for daily sustenance, prevention of injury, keeping of our health, the keeping of our jobs, all of those things we are dependent on God for on a regular day-by-day -day basis. But we assume so much because we trust so much in ourselves. God is warning us not to do that. The whole believing community prays together, give us, Lord, each day our daily bread. Give us the things that we need for tomorrow. And we have to pray on a daily basis for the forgiveness of our sins. Verse 4, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now this is not talking about the forgiveness of sins for our justification. 
when we are justified as believers, we have a once and for all off-putting of our sin. That is done by Jesus on the cross in history past. So the justification is already true of believers. So why would God tell believers to regularly confess their sins to him? Well, it's not because we have to be re-forgiven of our sins in a justification sense on a daily basis. But I think Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 has the best reference to this, that don't grieve the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? When you sin as a believer, it's not as though your salvation is at stake. But what is at stake? Well, the intimacy of the relationship you have with Father through the Spirit by means of being unadulterated before him. So when we pray for the forgiveness of sins, uh, notice the connection he makes, just as we forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Well, when you forgive someone, you're not changing their final justification. But what are you changing? You're changing the intimacy of your relationship with them. If you forgive someone, you have a closer and better relationship, a relationship that can recover from the injury that was done. And in the same way, we pray to God for the forgiveness of sins, not because we need new forgiveness of sins, that's already been done by Jesus on the cross, but because our intimacy is broken when we sin. We have a, a regular need to be forgiven by God our sins, and we're encouraged not just here by Jesus, but also all throughout the New Testament to regularly pray for the forgiveness of our sins. We ask each and every day for that, because each and every day we struggle with sin, which threatens to break our fellowship with the Father. And then lastly, the petition that is given here is lead us not into temptation. This uh, can be rendered all kinds of different ways, depending on what kind of English text you have in front of you. Uh, I like the way that the New Living Translation renders this one. It says, and don't let us yield to our trials. I think that carries the best sense of what's being communicated here in the text. God doesn't tempt us to sin. James makes that clear. God doesn't lead us into temptation. So we're not praying for God to not lead us into temptation in that sense. But what we are praying for is for God not to allow us to be overcome by trials, temptations, or tests that we face in this life. We pray to God with a kind of confidence that he already promised us ahead of time he wouldn't let us be overcome. You want a cross-reference for this? 1 Corinthians 10.13, we won't have time to turn there. But 1 Corinthians 10.13, this is the text which says, well, when you're tempted to sin, don't let anyone be afraid. No temptation has come upon you such that is uncommon to man, but with a temptation, God will be faithful and provide a means of escape. So if that's true, if God already promised us that he will provide a means of escape, now the question is, well, then why do we pray for God not to be, allow us to be overcome by temptation? Because praying for God to not allow us to be overcome by temptation is the means of escape from the temptation. I've heard it said before that God won't give you anything that you can't handle in a temptation sense. That text in 1 Corinthians 13 does not mean God won't put a temptation in front of you that you yourself can't handle. That's just kind of the whole point that you're being regularly exposed to things that you cannot handle. And when we ask for God not to lead us into temptation, what we're, what we're saying is, well, what is the means of escape that we escape the temptation? It's not your self-discipline. It's not your self-structure. It's not your own willpower. The means of escape is prayer to God for deliverance. And lead us not into a trial or temptation that is beyond our grasp. Don't let us give up. That's the means of escape by which we escape trials and tribulations and temptations in this world. The way uh, Calvin says this is whoever implores for the assistance of God 
to overcome temptations, acknowledges that unless God would deliver him, he would be constantly falling. When you ask for God's help in temptation and, stri- and trial and temptation, uh, you, are, you are admitting on the front end that you don't have it within yourself to deal with that temptation. That's why Jesus tells his disciples to pray that kind of thing. What you're seeing in prayer, even in this Lord's Prayer, is the reflection of the reality that we have a part to play in our interaction and our dynamic with God as disciples, but that God also has promised us all kinds of things that we can confidently ask of him. There's all kinds of things in this prayer that God's promised to his people, that they have forgiveness of sins, that he will provide for them on a daily basis, that he, well, he won't allow them to be overcome by sin, that his kingdom will come, that his name will be made holy in the world. All of those things are things which God elsewhere in scripture has promised. And Jesus is simply telling his disciples, hey, pray all those promises of God back to him. Because, well, you're praying on relatively safe grounds. You're just asking God for things he's already told you he's happy to give you. In a sense, it guards us from praying for things that, well, we're not sure if God wants that or doesn't want that for us. In the Lord's Prayer, we're kind of giving guardrails of what we can pray for with confidence, knowing that God will hear us and answer our prayer. We don't know how, he answers those prayers. For, for example, the last petition, and lead us not into temptation. Think about all the saints that didn't know how they were going to be delivered from the trials that they face in this world. Some were delivered by means of escape. Some were delivered by means of death and entrance into the eternal kingdom. So we don't know how he would address or answer those prayers. But what we do know is with confidence that he will answer them. And you might think, well, how does, how does my actions in this world play a part in me praying for things? Do I just pray about it and then I forget it and let it go? Well, no. When we pray for God's name to be holy, that doesn't mean we don't go about making his name holy in our own lives and in our own thoughts. When we pray for his kingdom to come, that means we, we don't just set it and forget it and hope that his kingdom comes. And then don't go about actually living in this world as though the world matters and the kingdom is coming here for a new heavens and new earth. We don't ask God for our daily bread and then, well, not go to work or not actually labor with jobs that God has provided us to give us our daily bread. The way that uh, it is said is that the fields must no doubt be cultivated, the labor must be bestowed, and every man must submit to the toil of his calling, but all of this does not hinder us from being fed by the undeserved kindness of God. We, We ask God for things, but then we also go about doing those things, trusting that God will provide. We ask God to forgive us our sins. Notice even the the conduct is right there in the text because we go about forgiving other people of the things which they owe us. And so we don't ask God for the forgiveness of sins, set it and forget it, and then go live in this world like people who are unforgiven or who are hoping to be forgiven. We go about living in this world as people who have been forgiven. That's the reality that informs our actions. And we even see this with temptation. It's not that we pray to God to deliver us from temptation and then we just say, well, whatever happens, happens. We pray to God to not lead us into temptation. And then we, with everything that we have access to, fight the temptation. Because there's no separation, unless you're a theologian and you struggle to put these pieces together, there's no separation between how we live in this world and our prayer lives. There's no separation between those. In fact, as I said in the beginning, Prayer is the blessing of God, the means by which all of the other things that are required of us can be done, can be completed. 
when we petition God in all these ways, part of what we're doing is we're securing and asking for the blessing of God upon all of the things in which he's required of us to do. That his name would be made great, that his kingdom would come. All of these petitions are things that God has promised to us. And with that being said, one of the foundational principles of this prayer is that we do have access to God in this unique kind of way, that he is indeed our father. Now, what makes that first part of the prayer true? Well, it's the fact that we're in Christ, but more than that, it's the fact that Christ has made that a reality for us. We don't pray as though we're unsure about whether God's listening to us or not. But the foundation of our prayer and God listening to us is rooted in Christ, who intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. John says, uh, I don't want you to sin, but if anyone sins, let him know that he is an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a confirmed reality of God as our Father because we have Christ as our Lord. And the fact that Christ is our Lord comes with a bunch of realities, but one of them is the fact that Christ is the means by which we access the Father. Not only for our justification, which he dealt with on the cross to make all of the rest of the access to God a reality. Right? If you're a priest in the Old Testament, the only way you can go into the Holy of Holies is by washing and cleansing and all the purging that comes with it. But Christ allows all of his disciples to pray directly to God. And they can ask God for things that only, well, only a son could ask for a father. Now, how could you have the intimacy with God as though you're a son if you're not perfectly righteous? Unless it is the righteousness of Christ that covers you. And if it's not his righteousness, then, well, the rest of this prayer is not going to anyone or being heard by anything. But God has secured our access to him in prayer by means of his son. Because if we came to God with all of our sins, still a real fixed reality on us, we wouldn't even be able to approach him in that kind of an intimate way. We would be struck dead as people in the Old Testament were because, well, they weren't holy enough to go into the Holy of Holies. But we don't fear that when we pray. Why? Because of what Christ has done. Him purchasing the reality of our relationship with God forms that this prayer is something that we're invited into, and it's a blessing for us. Think about being, having access to the God of all the universe, who can do whatever he wants, who can create times and seasons, who breathe the heavens into existence, who set the boundaries of the world as they are, who can do whatever he wants to, he can provide bread when he wants to from heaven, he can forgive you of whatever sin, and he can prevent any kind of trial from overtaking you. The God who does all those things, and he says, and by the way, on a regular basis, you can talk to me and just ask me for my blessing. And, and say that that would not be an immense comfort to a believer who otherwise lives in this world as one who's afflicted, persecuted, naked, faces all kinds of uh, bitterness and rejection from the world, well, what comfort is there in this Christian life? Well, we have comfort when we pray. We have comfort right before God who gives us prayer as a means of encouragement, strength, vitality, all of these things. Now, there's so much more that can be said about this text, but I think, just like I said in the beginning, one of the things I want us to do is not to walk away just knowing things about this prayer, but having the ability or maybe the excitement to use this prayer in our lives. So I would like to uh, close us now together in a time of prayer, using this as a backbone and a foundation for our prayer together. So would you close your eyes and join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that we have an intimacy with you that has been purchased as a reality for us by Christ. Lord, you have made all the separation that sin caused and all the brokenness and all of the pain and all the uh, distance that we had with you, all the wrath which was pent up and aimed at us, you have made that uh, be put away by Christ. And so we can approach you and call you Father. Lord, we pray that in this world, that your name would be revered, that people would come to love you and worship you and serve you who don't already know you, that even in our own hearts and lives, we would love you more and reverence your name more, that we would be a people who are wholly set apart from this world as a means of making your name great in this world. Lord, would you bring about your justice, your mercy, your peace, your rule on this earth? Would you allow more and more for the growth of your kingdom, the expansion of the gospel, the preaching of your word, and the conversion of souls to be a part of your people? Lord, would you give us today and every day what we need and what we require our jobs, our food, our homes, our health, all of the things which we are regularly dependent on you for, the very breath that we breathe, would you give us a daily portion that we might never forget our dependence on you, but Lord, that we would never uh, be wallowing as your people. We would always have provisions and be kept. Lord, would you forgive us of our sins? Those which we've committed today, this week, those which have caused our separation from you and have perhaps hindered our reading of your word, our prayer, those things which have kept us apart from you. Lord, would you forgive us of those sins? And would you cause us to live as a people in this world who pass that forgiveness on to others who have wronged us, who have caused us pain, who have sinned against us? Would you make us a forgiving people so we might testify to your glory and to your truth by even means of our own action and our conduct. And Lord, finally, we ask that you would not give us over to any trial or temptation, but you would preserve us, you would keep us, you would provide a means of escape so that in the trial and in the temptation, your name would be made glorious in this world, that you would be found to be a God who doesn't allow his people to perish, but that not even one hair on our head is outside of your providence. And would you make your name great by keeping us as a people who are unaffected by trials and temptations. That we are dependent on you even in the midst of our worst days and even in our best days. And Lord, we lift these petitions up to you, knowing that you've already promised them for us beforehand. That you've now given us the privilege of coming before you and requesting them of you. And Lord, would you give us confidence even as we now depart and go into our weeks would you give us the confidence that we do have access to you that we can pray to you and that you are listening and you are ready to give us good gifts Lord we lift this all up to you Amen